Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode four of the podcast. Today my guest is Dick Johns, who is an actor, and a writer, a facilitator from Cardiff. Hi Dick, how are you? Hi Kieran, it's great to be here talking to you. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you dealing with this coronavirus crisis at the moment? to alleviate that anxiety whilst also um, I guess trying to make things as normal as possible still have normal feel times and I I just wanted to start with I wanted to talk about um, your early experiences in the arts um, yeah. Was it, was it something you were interested in as a child and were there opportunities available to you? Did you grow up in Cardiff, did you? Yes, yeah, I did grow up in Cardiff. So I think uh, there's several things to say about that. So I think as you look back, you go, okay, yeah, I see. Yes, I did want to perform at the old people's home when I was five and sing that song in front of all the old ladies. And I did really enjoy that round of applause I got. Uh, and I was an eldest child, and I think I was quite I had quite a young mum, and I think I was quite um, my my kind of show offy things were kind of indulged. I think from a very young age, right. I was very used to getting a lot of attention. And then as my family grew, you know, I ended up with three siblings. You know, there was always a kind of struggle for who could be the loudest and get the most attention. But it was a struggle that I very rarely lost. So um, I think I was very used to get attention. And then, of course, I went to high school. And actually, at the start of high school, I found it quite difficult and was bullied a bit. But once I discovered school plays and the fact that I could do this thing and sing and perform and make people laugh, particularly making people laugh, the sound of an audience laughter at a school play was a kind of great moment for me and also allowed me to become uh, more socially comfortable in school mm. and then you mentioned Cardiff so Cardiff didn't have a huge amount of stuff going on but I'm very grateful for the stuff that there was so there was a summer school run at Fanover Hall in Canton which I went to and that was amazing because you kind of met people who were like you so you discovered that it wasn't just you know maybe there's one or two people in your school who were a bit like you but suddenly you're in a place with like you know 30 other young people yeah. who've got the same kind of need as you the same desire to do this kind of creative performing thing so that was kind of an amazing quite releasing moment actually um and the stuff I learned as a young person in those uh, in those kind of summer schools still informs a lot of my practice today when I work with young people. Mm. And and did you feel in those summer schools for the first time that there were people like you who were interested? In, did you feel like an outsider generally until you were in those? 
environment. I, I didn't because I'm quite um, gregarious and I have the useful skill at school of being able to make people laugh. So, um, mm. uh, and I and I use that a lot. So I think I was able to kind of navigate the awful crapness of high school life where you know being good at sport is clearly the key driver for boys of, of success you know almost every term i was able yeah. to navigate that and kind of be in with the kind of hard kids and the sporty kids and all the kids by just being funny um and that also meant that you know girls were interested as well which was also a, a useful thing so i think um uh i didn't feel like an outsider in that sense but there was a part of me the creative part of me that felt like okay maybe there aren't that many people like me here there were a few though there mm. were a couple of other people who i was really close to at school who shared that creative instinct um but but it's useful to find that there are lots of those people around and that you're not some kind of weirdo for seeing the world in that yeah. way yeah yeah uh, did you write much as a child? Uh, so, um, I did write when I was young, but a lot of it was... Um, I, I mean, I did write, actually, yes. So I wrote, I, I edited the Sixth Form magazine, and I uh, was very into English. And in fact, my first degree was in English when I went to university. So I had always written creatively and enjoyed that process. I remember being about 12, uh, and I used to have to do the Sunday school on a Sunday morning, and I remember we used to go to my grandmother's afterwards, and I remember starting a story that I would write every week uh, in kind of book, in a book that was at my grandmother's, and I just left it there, so I'd write it every Sunday. But I, I had a kind of strange, almost self-censorship thing going on where I thought that, I couldn't do this, that there was somehow... I remember I had it when I used to listen to Desert Island Discs as well as a kid. I used to think, oh, how will I ever be like these people who can who can listen to this classical music and have this rich understanding of culture, right? How will I ever be uh, the person who can finish a book? It's all very well for me to start it, but I finish it. It's right. almost like I didn't really feel like I had the right to finish stuff. So, yes, I've always written. And uh, the other thing uh, is... Uh, I'm quite literal minded, so I got given a diary for my 10th, well, maybe for Christmas actually in 1976. I remember it was a Let's Disneyland diary. And I guess because okay. I'm quite literal minded, I wrote in that diary every night in 1976. And there began a kind of diligent diary keeping that went on till about 2003 when I had wow. my second kid and I was just too knackered to do it. But I've got upstairs in my office, I've got. Yeah, I've got diaries from the year 1976 to 2003. Um, and and I did write it every night, uh, and I wrote quite a lot sometimes. So, mm. you know, I'm sure none of it is particularly exciting or interesting now. I'm sure it's pretty normal, teenage, angsty stuff. But I guess in terms of the practice of writing, I was doing it, yeah. Do you ever read that stuff back? Look back on the stuff that uh, you I, I did to be honest it's kind of there was a show on there on radio four quite recently where they, they did they did get celebrities to read their diary entries and mostly i identified with a lot of what people said about it being quite mortifying it's not it's not um the writing you do when you're 14 15 or even mm. 22 23 is not oh, i mean no offense meant at all but it's not necessarily fully formed in terms of um or wasn't for me anyway i think that's fair to mm. say I think it took me a long time to find my voice, actually both as a writer and as a as a human, actually, mm. yeah, as a performer, but also as a as a person. I think for me, at my age, I'm still trying to work out what my voice is as a writer, and I think I'm getting there, but yeah. it's difficult. Um, you know, when you just come out of uni and you're trying to. When people ask you what you want to write, or what, what you want to write about, do you feel like you should know the answers to these questions? Yeah, but it's kind of not really, um, I don't know how useful it is, because, you know, and in fact, that was something I found when I did stand-up, or, or tried to do stand-up in London, because I used to MC, and I was very good at hosting a room, and looking after the room, and looking mm. after the other comics that were starting out when I was in the mid-90s. Um, but not great at generating 
material because I didn't feel I had a lot to, that I burned to say about moving. And it's taken me to be um, quite a lot older, probably in my mid to late 40s, to find out what that stuff was that I burned to say and to stop just being happy with saying the words of other people as an actor, but to say my own yeah. stuff. Um, so I think, but, but having said that, lots of people... And you, Kieran, I've, I've heard some of your work, and I think um, it, some people do have uh, quite a rich vein of stuff to say at quite a young age. Do you know what I mean? It's not. Mm. I'm not saying there's a kind of 23-year-old can't <laughs> say that I didn't when I was 23. Right. You know, it's, it's not like um, I think some people have a very fully formed voice at 16, even. You know, and mm. that might be in terms of popular music. You know, that might be. Billy Eilish, or that might be, you know, do you know what I mean? It could be anything. Yeah. It's just about having a voice that is authentic. Because it's all writing at the end of the day, it's all kind of words on a page, it's just different ways of expressing that. Yeah, you know, I think it's fascinating that Kate Bush wrote Wuthering Heights when she was 13, do you know what I mean? I think that's phenomenal, but also kind of understandable because there's that amazing. Uh, perception that you have of the world when you discover it for the first time and you can never fully recapture that actually mm. yeah that's really interesting um, you studied English and psychology I did yeah yeah, yeah. Really, really. Um, where, where did the interest in psychology kind of come from uh, well I'm going to be really honest about that we had so I did English that was the degree I chose and I think that was chosen mainly because I, that was the subject I was good at so I didn't have a lot of guidance because people in my family had never been to university really right. so I didn't have a lot of guidance around what subject to choose um, uh, so I kind of just thought I was good at it so I'd choose it uh, and then you had to do a subsidiary subject and I did psychology. I did, I don't, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what led me to do that, I th- kind of think I had to pick something and that was it. However, I did find it really interesting. So we looked at um, child development, mm. particularly the development of language in children and how that happens. Um, and we also looked at uh, gender stereotyping, which was really interesting, and also at sex, and sexual performance and all that kind of stuff. But the sex world, the gender stuff was really, really interesting, particularly in the context of what's happened now and the kind of conversations that are taking place now around gender. Yeah. Uh, it was a great book that I had to read, I remember, by Dale Spender called Man-Made Language, which was a kind of 70s Californian intellectual text that explored the fact that that men created the language that we, that we you know, men created the, the language that we use, and both in medical and in almost every term, that means it's a designed for men and used by men. And a lot of these thoughts are becoming much more current now, people thinking about how actually language is meaning and we shape our understanding through language. Yeah. So if that's created by men, then we need to kind of have a think about that and look at how we can allow other people to gain um, access to that in a different way. And there's been a big movement of self-identification recently which was brilliant and until recently i feel that some people are being kind of boxed in by language totally yeah 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 totally and i think uh so so that was a real um i was really glad that i had had the opportunity to look at that um in the university environment because it it kind of opened stuff up for me and maybe understand things in a slightly different way. Um, yeah, I had a great time at university. I mostly, I've got to say, did plays. I mostly performed mm. and, and directed plays. Because <laughs> 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 English required about six hours of contact a week. And I think Stephen Fry said this in an interview. He said, you know, it's like um, the amazing thing about being at university is you can, you'll never again have that ready-made team of directors, mm. writers, you know, people who want to do stage management, people who want to design the programmes, people who want to make the poster, people who want to sell the tickets, but every, all these people do all these things for free, right? You just, that doesn't happen in the real world. So if you want to put on, you know, 
I remember directing a play called Comedians by Trevor Griffiths, which is one of my absolute favourite plays. And, you know, we took it to Edinburgh. But, you know, you could just do that. You could just mm. say, OK, I want to do that. Who, who's going to do this? Who's going to design the poster? Who's going to uh, do the marketing? Who's gonna... There were people who were happy to do all those jobs. It was phenomenal, actually. So I loved being at Birmingham University. Yeah, had a great time. And have you gone on to work with any of these people who you were in production with at Miriam subsequently? Uh, so I have been, yes I have. So there's a, a writer called, I mean he's a writer children's books, but he's also written plays um, called Dominic Barker, who was a really good mate of mine there, uh, who, uh, yeah, we've collaborated over the years on several play readings and stuff like that. We also wrote a play together in the late 90s. And also another guy who was my, probably my best friend at university, Jez Thomas, um, we formed a theatre company when we left mm. uh, Birmingham called the Custard Factory Theatre Company, based in a disused custard factory in Digbeth, in central right. Birmingham. Um, and we did kind of innovative five-person physical theatre productions of Hamlet and Macbeth, which got really well-reviewed by The Guardian. Again, the kind of thing you could do you when you're young because you've got energy and, and space and time for this. So we were on something called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which pays 40 quid a week. And we used to go and rehearse and re-rehearse these shows. Um, yeah, and they were very happy, if slightly, you know, yeah, they were, they were happy mm. days, actually. So yes, yeah, I have collaborated with people from, from the university. And was there, when you graduated when you left uni, did you feel at all like, what do I do now? Or was yeah, it... to, yeah, totally. How, how, did you, how did you deal so with I that? I had that process delayed by one year, so I did, um, I finished my degree and then went straight into the custom factory theatre company, which was an incredible opportunity. It was in this, as I said, disused custom factory. Yeah. There were five of us. There was a woman called Julianne Robinson who ran uh, was the idea it was, and she was kind of the driving force behind it. She's now, um, in fact, I think she directs quite a lot in America, you know, but American TV. But she was very driven, even at 21. So that first year was incredible. But after that year of doing the Custom Factory, or year and a half, um, I basically ran out of money. I could no longer live. Um, so I had to, to stop and go uh, get a job in a hotel. And I remember doing, I remember going for an interview at this hotel in the centre of Birmingham, and I remember the general manager interviewing me and saying, why do you want to come and work here? You've got a degree, what are you doing? Mm. And I was like, I just need money. I, I don't, you know, it was like he couldn't believe that I would want to go and work there with my, with this qualification I had. And I was like, I just need to earn money and pay off my debt. So during that period the second year after university before i then went to welsh college of music and drama and did a postgraduate acting yeah. course i yeah i did find that really challenging actually i found it it, it was because it's a bit like after the lord mayor's show or whatever the phrase is you know suddenly there's no one around suddenly that amazing mm. bank of young people that you've been surrounded by that incredible concentration of excitement and youth and vibrancy and inventiveness suddenly a lot of those people have gone and they're doing whatever mm. they, they're now doing and you can feel very quickly like you, you, you're quite isolated and you haven't got... Um, yeah, that, that daily contact you, you miss, I think. I, yeah. I've missed the routine of yeah, sure. go, going somewhere. Sure. You know, and having sure. seen people around, that, like you say, to create stuff with, to yeah. collaborate with. Um, and I think... I think that's really normal to feel like that, Kieran, and, and um, I, I think uh, it's very little talked about, actually, what the, the effect of this... Also, you've got to remember, if you go straight from university, you know, from school to university, then you, by the time you finish university, you've been in education in one way or another for such a long period of time, mm. you know, 20, 18 years or whatever. So it kind of... Um, it's a shock to the system. It can be a shock to the system. I think, um, I guess as creatives, we just have to do exactly what you're doing. We have to seek out whatever opportunities we can to be 
to find those opportunities, do you know what I mean? But also creating opportunities for yourself as an artist and not waiting for them to come to you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's... Do you know, the, the, the most important thing for me about being an actor over the years is that, you, you know, you know, it is such a disempowering uh, job in the sense of uh, you're constantly waiting for other people to say yes or to mm. you know, cast you or to and it, and you're kind of absurdly grateful when people even give you an audition, you know, and then you're absurdly grateful when they offer you a job and then and then you know it, it, it forces a kind of um, it's very disempowering. You don't have the control. And so the, the older I've got, and actually now I look back all through my career, really, I've found opportunities to have that control, to gain that control, mm. either by doing my own work or creating my own work or doing other things that allow me to have self-esteem while still retaining the right to be a creator. Yeah, that's really important. It's really good to hear, actually. Um, I want to ask you about writing for different mediums you've written for. These days you've written for short stories and various other different mediums. Um, is there a difference in terms of process for you? Uh, I find... That's a great question. I find writing plays very, very difficult and very challenging. Um, and I haven't quite... I don't think I've got... I've, I've had a couple of um, short plays that have won awards actually and I've done really well but they were 10 minute plays I've just written a longer form play for um, a project called The Talking Shop which was run by my wife Yvonne Murphy um, and then my day's productions which was a kind of engagement project which took place in Cardiff yeah um, and yeah the challenge for me is always structure with drama and with and trying to ensure that uh, it is dramatic, I know it sounds so obvious, but that it is dramatic mm. rather than just exposition or just you kind of trying to say, because I think, you know, for me, if you're going to write anything, you need to have a reason to write it, right? You need to have something to say, whatever that is, you do need to have something to say. So the, the danger, if you feel you've got something to say, is that you can become too driven by the idea that you've got to preach it and yes. expose it come exposition yeah rather than just allowing that story to be told through action so I think what I'm constantly trying to do or aspiring to do is when I'm writing drama is to look for action you know because in the end that's the definition of what makes us interesting when we go to the theatre we've all been to the theatre and been bored shitless and just you know just like you know I, I kind of yeah. want to say this the, the boredom you experience when you're watching a play that you're not enjoying is there's nothing, there's kind of nothing worse. It's not like mm. there's something about how trapped you are and how you can't escape that that is kind of quite intense. Yes. Just, you know, um, part of you does die in that situation. So I think uh, <laughs> the desire to not bore people is quite strong for me in that because I've been that audience member so often over the years. Um, and then, anyway, yes, sorry, so I was second part of your question. Short stories I find a lot easier. Uh, I particularly like, I mean, if I'm honest, my favourite literary form is probably poetry because you can say so much with so little. Mm. And, you know, someone like Philip Larkin manages to, or Wendy Cope, manages to say so much without you know, without saying a huge amount at all, you know, they did, they, you know, do you know what I mean, in a very small, maybe three verses, four verses, they can tell you a huge amount mm. of human experience, and I think, so that's my perfect literary form, I don't think it's given to me yet to do that though, but uh, but short stories definitely, I feel like, my short stories, some of them are really short, literally a thousand words, but I feel like I can get quite a lot said in that thousand words, Yeah. Uh, and I enjoy that uh, process. Uh, so, so I like process that very differently. So, a short story, a bit like a poem, I suppose, for someone like I've read Philip Larkin talking about where his po poetic ideas come from. Short story, I'll have an idea for something that I want to say, 
So it might be triggered by just something that happens, like a, an incident that happens. And then that will become, I'll go, okay, but how does that, how can I express that idea in the briefest possible way in a short story as concisely as possible? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But so uh, I, like said, I don't know, it feels like the most convoluted answer than anyone's ever No, it, it was in depth. It was really kind of... Good. That's what I want to do, Kieran. Go with that. That's, yeah, that's, that's what it was. <laughs> Really, um, and you know, you you're an actor, you're a writer, um, you teach as well. Is it sometimes hard to like uh, diversify the work yes. that you do? Do you feel like yeah. you? Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you flippantly there because I was going to say, is it sometimes hard? Yes, it is. Is this um, is is it hard to diversify between the three things? Yes. So um. The teaching part, uh, I think I, I think I'm. This is quite. I'm going to say something really egocentric now, but you know, what I need to be true to myself, so why not? Um, I think uh, uh, it's, I'm quite good at teaching, mm. but I don't necessarily uh, burn to do it all the time. So, a lot of my work in the corporate world, which is kind of how I pay my bills as an actor, is to do with facilitating big and small rooms, facilitating learning for other people. And actually, usually that involves asking a lot of questions and uh, getting pe the people to reflect on wh where what's going on for them emotionally, actually. Or, right. you know, so, say I'm dealing with someone who's managing a team and there's unhappiness in their team and we're working, we're talking about that, I'm really getting them to reflect on what they're, how how their behaviour is impacting other people's behaviour to think about that a little bit. And the best way to do that is through questions. When I'm teaching drama for young actors at Welsh College, that's more about running improvisation workshops and stuff like that. So it's more about facilitating. But again, it's facilitation. It's facilitating games uh, yeah. and activities that allow people to learn. Uh, you know, I think I'm driven in teaching by two things. One, it should be fun. And never boring, so that's that's another thing. Uh, that's that's a kind of recurring theme, um, but also um, that it it should be driven by by the people that are. It's not about people being the recipients of learning. Do you know what I mean? Our education system, I think, especially in mm. school, it's very it's still kind of predicated around transmit and receive. Yeah, um, and I think there's we can be much more proactive and interesting with that especially in drama that allows the opportunity for people to learn through experientially and contribute to their own education exactly yeah, yeah. exactly and for me education is a two-way thing it yeah. shouldn't be about a teacher educating a student the Sorry. two entities should be able to learn from each other absolutely absolutely i mean absolutely so one of the things i most enjoy about I do, you know, I give up Sundays to work at Welsh College, which I, you know, I sometimes reflect, you know, why am I doing this at the weekends? And, you know, it is partly financially driven, and that's the reality of being in this business. But also, it's driven by the fact that I get, exactly as you say, I get a lot from working with those young people um, in terms of their energy and their openness and their creativity and their desire to learn and their enthusiasm. You know, I think young people in general get quite a bad press. And I think, uh, actually, what I see in those rooms on a Sunday is, is kind of astonishing commitment and creativity. Uh, and I learn a lot from it because I, it's very uplifting, do you know what I mean, for a long kid like yeah. me who's 53. Yeah, and see the next kind of generation coming yes. through. I, I find it quite inspiring and also... This is kind of circular with where we began. It allows me to see, and I could see very easily, you know, the space it allows for 15 year olds like the 15 year old that I was when I went mm. to Clan of Hall and discovered my kind of tribe. It, it, uh, it facilitates that space for exactly another generation of 15, 16, 17 year olds who maybe do, like you said, feel like the outsider or feel like the person who's not. Do you mm. know what I mean? kind of allows that for them and I think that's an amazing 
Yeah, I think it's an amazing thing. Definitely. Um, what, what do you find frustrating about, are there any things that you find frustrating about teaching? And does that mainly come from yourself or is it? Uh, I think when I started teaching, I was very driven by the idea that it was, that I needed to put on some kind of performance. Right. And, and kind of be constantly <laughs> entertaining people, which is, that's again, thematic for me. Um, but I think, yeah, so, I, and, and sometimes I would therefore be frustrated. Also, I used to think that control was really important, whereas now I understand that it's, you know, if, if people are fully engaged, then you don't need to control a group of young people because they will be fully engaged. And if they're not fully engaged, it's because you aren't engaging them properly. And, and that's, so that, that that switch where you take responsibility for what's going on in the, in the space is a really important one for me in terms of pedagogy, in terms of teaching, I, I think. Yeah, you, it, whatever's happening in that space, if you're the facilitator of the learning, if it's dysfunctional, it's probably something to do with you rather than them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, so the, I think the answer to your question is, I think I did experience frustrations as a younger man, but less so now. Not that I've completely nailed it and that I get it right all the time, just that you just learn through doing many, many times. Yeah, and building on that experience, and I guess, like you say, really being truthful to yourself and analyzing what you've done well and where you can improve. Yes, I think that's true. I think, uh, yes, I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, how did you get involved with corporate, the corporate side of things? Um, so, I was fortunate enough to go to, oh yeah, you asked me about people I work with. So there was, at Birmingham, there was a woman called Connie who uh, did drama, actually, but I met her in Freshers Week at university, and she um, ended up setting up a company providing medical role players for Birmingham University Medical School, and then she got a commercial contract in Coventry to work with Peugeot Motors, and by this time I was 93, I was living in London, and two years out of drama school, uh, and suddenly she was able to call me up and say, do you want to you know, go and stay in a nice hotel and do a day's role play for Peugeot Motors with another actor and you'll just, yeah, you just play angry customers or or whatever and, and you they have to deal with you and that's, you know, yeah. you know and they feed you. And to be honest, at that point in my life, I would have probably done the job for the night in the hotel and the nice food and the, you know, the free wine and everything, right. irrespective yeah. of being paid, but actually it was also very lucrative because of course it was commercial, so that began in 93, and then I suppose that's now 22 years since then, isn't it? no, 93, I can't do any maths, 27 years since then, um, yeah, I've had a parallel career doing that for various businesses, and now what I do is I write and design programs for businesses and often I'm the facilitator in the room and maybe I've got a team of two or three actors who yeah. facilitate the learning and maybe we show a little scene and then we do like a forum theatre thing where people have an input and maybe we show the scene um, and this could be for you know it could be for network rail or it could be for uh, a, a merchant bank or it could mm. be for Marks and Spencer's you know you name it, people use those things. So I think I was very lucky to get in on it at the beginning. Uh, but I do think it's potentially a lucrative um, income stream for actors particularly um, because it does use our skill set. A lot of the stuff is around empathy, actually, just for, yeah. for leaders and managers being able to think about what it might actually be like to be a member of staff in the organisation that we work in. And it sounds so obvious, but people, I think, can very easily lose sight of the human element of what they do, which is a, yeah. function, of, a function of late capitalism, isn't it? People have lost sight of... And actually, one of the really positive things about what's happening at the moment, um, if we are going to fight extract the positives, is that um, 
you know, maybe it is an opportunity for people to reflect on the, hu- the human side of their interactions, actually. Turns out that we can stop quite a lot of work without it being the end of the world, you know. Yeah. And what's the work that really matters? Turns out that's the work where people are actually dealing with other human beings in a kind of empathic and loving way, a caring way. Uh, turns out they're the people who are the most important people in our society. Oh, but hang on, turns out they're also the people we pay the least. That's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, maybe, you know, fingers crossed, who knows? It really does put the finger up to capitalism, though. This idea that your value is based on the amount of money you earn, not what you contribute to society. And hopefully when this ends, which I hope it will, we can change our perspective and our viewpoints. I'd love to think here that that might happen. I'm sadly, well, I just, well, I would. I would love to think. I think it will change certain things, but I, you know, whether it's whether it um, facilitates that level of recalibration remains to be seen. Back back to the corporate roleplay for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's cool. Um, I'm interested um, in how people respond this um are they generally on board with it or are there times when you found it difficult to uh, engage so, with people so uh, there's a noticeable difference between now and 27 years ago so i think when i first started doing it it was comparatively new uh and people were very skeptical of it uh part of how people respond to it will be to do with the level of damage that they have had from previous experiences of it so Quite often, people will have been will see the term role play as a very intimidating term because it's been badly used before. Uh, and you, by badly used, I mean a lot of organisations will get uh, uh, colleagues to role play with each other, so they won't use professionals. They'll do right. it with each other, and of course, that lends itself to one of two things: either people going really easy on each other. Or the opposite, people being ridiculously hard on each other and kind of using it as an opportunity to beat people up, not literally, but kind of through yeah, kind of conversation. Uh, either way, neither of those things are healthy. Um, you know, but used properly, um, communication skills training, sometimes using role play, not always, sometimes using forum theatre, can be a really positive tool for learning. Uh, but in order to do that, you kind of have to be quite skilled in how you handle it. You need to think about um, creating a safe environment for people, explaining that it's not about getting it right, mm. explaining that it's not about winning or losing, it's not about getting to the end of the interaction, it's about stopping and starting the interaction and looking at what works and what doesn't, um, and really working through it as a team so that we're all learning stuff in this space rather than it being about one person being on the spot and under pressure but you need to um you need to um have been doing that for a long i well you need to have that knowledge and background to be able to set it up in that way so i mean yeah over the years i've encountered a lot of resistance i remember going Mm. to southwest trains in 2000 into a room of people who were ex-British rail workers who now work for a newly franchised railway company, mm. um, and they were they were very resistant to the idea that there was even something called a customer on the railway. Mm. You know, they they said they're they're not customers; they're passengers. We shouldn't be talking about them as customers. You know, the railways would run a lot better if there weren't any passengers. You know, that that kind of old school attitude. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm no proselytizer for capitalism, but I think some of the attitudes around the idea that people that were users of a service did need to be challenged because there was some quite ingrained stuff about yeah. you know, that the whole idea of customer service was somehow American and therefore to be dismissed. You know, I think I think there's a there's a there's a place where we can um, we can look to give people the best experience we can, both in the private sector and the public sector. Yeah. Um, you know, I've also, in turn, I've worked with a lot of senior managers in the health service, and these people are under enormous stress, you know, pressure. Um, but they've had very little training to be leaders and managers. Mm. Um, so, so, whereas in the corporate sector, slightly more money tends to get invested in that. In the health service, there just isn't the 
the budget to invest in that and I think so there's a big gap there so yeah I mean it's, it's there are huge needs across all industries but I think the the, the, the the basic desire to help people have better conversations in the workplace is a really yeah. positive one I, um, I, I agree yeah um, um, making them aware of what this could add to their practice as a company. Yeah, people, usually people nowadays, it's changed, I'm sorry to say this, now people are much more open yeah. to the idea that that's a useful way to work, and, you know, than they were 27 years ago. People are much more, but yeah, I think that's partly about schooling as well. We educate people differently now. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Most young people will have done presentations in their English classes while they're doing GCSEs and stuff yeah. like that. We, we expect young people to be on their feet a lot more. We expect people to be able to communicate better. That's a big that's a big change in education in my lifetime, actually. A big positive change. I yeah, think. very positive change. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Can we talk about your one man show? Let's talk about death. Come on, let's talk about that. Um, what yeah, do you want to say? Yeah, like, where did the idea come from? Oh, uh, first of all. I'm basically a deeply, profoundly morbid human being who's obsessed by death. Uh, and I can't really... Yeah, that's all I've got. I don't know. I, I, uh, my father died in a hospice in Carrara in 2005. Right. And I was lucky enough to be with him. Um, and... Uh, five o'clock in the morning and it's the sea still in Penarth where I live just outside the hospice you could see the sea and um, there was like a mill pond the, the Bristol Channel and uh, there was something very beautiful about the moment when he when he um, died and about the fact that I was with him uh, and very kind of spiritual about it as well and reflected on it a lot since and then I kind of noticed that I had a few this is many years later I noticed I've still got quite a lot of objects that belong to my father like he used to smoke a pipe and I've kept a pipe of his and a cricket trophy from when he played for Radha in the second division in Cardiff and you know I and I, there's a tie of his actually a thin 1960s very cool gold tie that, that I sometimes wear when I do corporate work and and I was just reflecting on that really and what that is why I've kept those things is he yeah. in those things in some way what do they represent so I kind of thought that might be the basis of a one man show so I'd done a show in 2016 a chapter called uh, What Midlife Crisis which was basically about me being 50 uh, and then I kind of developed that in this show in 2018 to look at I mean, it's, it wasn't unrelentingly uh, <laughs> kind of serious. I'm making it sound unrelentingly serious, but actually it was quite comedic. It was a kind of storytelling show with a lot of light moments. But I did look at uh, old photographs. There was a kind of family portrait. We'd have done it in the studio in Cardiff with my, my family in, like, 75. And I did a, the, the mechanism I used in the show was to talk to my younger self quite a lot. Right. It'd be like a picture of me at five, and I'd have conversation with me at five. Mm. Or there'd be a picture of me uh, with very long hair when I first left university, my first spotlight picture. You know, and I'd have a conversation with that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like uh, it was a bit like so I, as well as exploring my father, and also I, I characterised and embodied my father at certain points and did kind of did him because he was quite a distinctive character so I kind of played him so it was kind of my father and me and also my own children and, and the legacy so it was about legacy but also about uh, how people live on in us or through us yeah. or what, you know what that is really yeah uh, so that, again another completely incoherent and convoluted answer for which I apologise and, and the process of writing a one-man show, um, did, was it difficult to structure that? Yes. Um, so, um, yeah, so what do I... Do? I did two weeks of Positions Valuable with the director of Bicycle, Simon Harris. Um, uh, and that was really useful. And actually... 
very first day of that RD, the put a load of A4, not A4, big flip chart papers all over the walls of the room we were working in, the Barry Memorial Hall, and said, okay, you're going to tell your life story now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I think, I think he might have divided it into five years, so he might have gone, so I was born in 66, so he might have gone 1970 to 75, 75 to 80, 80 to 85, 85 to 90. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, but I want to kind of finally reflect on your time as a stand-up. Mm. Um, what was did you? What was it like, really? Um, was it like so I yeah so I was very fortunate that I met someone called Christian Knowles who's still a comedy promoter in London who um, uh, started doing gigs in quite small places in London like the Ivory the Arsenal Tavern on Blackstock Road I remember a wine bar in Muswell Hill he'd start getting little gigs uh, and I would compare them because he knew me and he knew that I'd be able to do that job. Uh, and a lot of the people who are on the early bills that I was comparing, you know, are now massive household names. So Lee Mack was on, I think, the very first bill mm-hmm. I ever compared. Shappy Corsandi was on another one. Um, I'm trying to think who else. I'm sure Harry Hill was on one of them. I think Al Murray was on Bill's Ross Noble, all these kind right. of people. Um, so... So, but they were just starting out themselves. Do you know what I mean? They were literally mm. starting out themselves. So Lee Mack had kind of ten minutes of material which he would repeat. And most comedians, when they started, they do two, three gigs a night in different parts of London. I wasn't doing that. I was just comparing, uh, and I was mainly doing that for Christian. I was also doing some other gigs of my own, but I was mainly doing Christian stuff because I was also still an actor. And I was still, I'd go off and do the English Shakespeare Company or I'd go off and do a tour for six months with the theatre. Yeah. So I didn't have ever that full-time commitment to doing stand-up that those stand-ups that you would now know, like Lee Mack and people, yeah. had. All of those people, I think minimally a stand-up's going to have done four or five years of three, four gigs, of, you know, two or three gigs a night yeah. in order to get to the point where they feel so comfortable and confident in front of an audience that they, they are, you know, they, they're, they're there, do you know what I mean? Very few uh, comics kind of get, uh, arrive fully formed into the, into the stratosphere because comedy yeah. doesn't happen like that. Um, so, but in terms of, I mean, I did do my own material as well, but most of my material was kind of quite derivative. And this is the thing about voice again. Um, it was a, a kind of version of me, a kind of smooth, patter-filled, kind of velvet-jacketed version of me, rather um, And uh, that worked really well for the compare role, because the compare should be someone who makes it all feel smooth and velvety, and everything's great, and it's all going to be really positive, and we're going to applaud the last act. And I used to run joke competitions, which was something I'd stolen from watching Frank Skinner, because he used to do a joke competition when he ran the Heronance Comedy Night in Birmingham in the late 90s. Um, and it was great, you just get audiences to write jokes at the interval, and then you read them out. But when you yeah. read them out, you have a kind of competition, you have a clap bometer for which is the best joke. But it always works because, A, you're reading out the audience's material, so they love it. But B, you can take the piss out of their handwriting, or you can say you know, what's this, or what's this word here, or you yeah. just take the piss out of the joke, sometimes the joke's I'm fucking appalling, so mm-hmm. you just take the piss out of that, so it gives you, it's just that kind of, uh, it's, that was a great thing to use, um, and just really simple competitions where you get a couple of people up out of the audience and do, I did a lot of audience interaction, basically, um, and, uh, which I think is a strength of mine, um, but no, in terms of stand-up, I didn't have, I didn't have, a strong point of view or voice that I needed to, to say anything about. And I think, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, Kieran, in the comedy work we've done, you know, or the things we've done with you. Yeah. It's, it's really important to, it's a bit like writing, actually. Well, it is writing. It's important to feel you have something to say if you're going to, if you're going to do it, I think, to feel you have something you want to say and get off your chest. And do you feel that you have something to say in regards to maybe poetry or short stories or drama, but not necessarily in that medium in standard? Yeah, now, I think uh, it's an interesting one. Sometimes I toy with the idea of could I do stand-up again? I think the closest I will get to it is what I do now, which is which is my one-man shows. Um, 
I have got, I don't, I'm 53, I don't know if I've got the energy <laughs> to, yeah. to go back there again, because it does require, you know, huge reserves of um, just energy, physical energy. Um, uh, yeah, I think I'm happy with what I do in my one man shows, which is not mm. to say I'm not interested in being funny or, or, or uh, making audiences laugh is still very important to me, making people laugh in general. It's still very important to me, um, but I but I um, don't think I. Yeah, I think I think I can say what I need to say better in a short story, or in a uh, less ostensibly comedic one man show than I yeah. can through stand up. Um, but there are stand ups who I think are absolutely brilliant. I mean, Stuart Lee is, of course, the doyen of most. Mm. You know, I mean. But what's amazing about his, him is that his shows are fully formed uh, pieces that manage to say something whilst also being funny. But then there's always a purpose, you know what I mean? They, and, and, yeah. I've got, structure. They have a structure rather than yeah, exactly. just being a series of jokes. Exactly. Exactly. But that's but equally, there's a place for Tim Vine as well. You know, there's a place mm. for Norton Jones. There's a place for those people as well for those comics who because um, that's also a really hard thing to do to write jokes <laughs> yeah. to write good one line two line jokes is 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 tough right so uh, I mean I personally I, I become a little bit exhausted after an hour of that do you know what I mean yeah I can watch it for 20 minutes but I'm like but for some people that's that's great and that's fine do you know what I mean there's space for all of it isn't there I think I think so uh, I would like comedy I'd like to see more uh, I, I get a little bit tired of voices that I feel are overly privileged uh, but that's a kind of again back to my kind of socialist flag waving thing I, I, I feel like if we're not careful because London is so expensive and prohibitive to live in now for people yeah. from, back, from most backgrounds um, if we're not careful we're going to end up with just a kind of middle class comedy of middle class people speaking to each other about mm. olives and you know stuff I, like that. I've noticed that. I have. Yeah. Lastly, I want to ask what advice you would give to someone starting out, maybe someone who's just come out of education and going into the industry. <sighs> yeah, advice I'm not, you know, advice is uh, <laughs> Says you, you go for advice to you know that thing about you go you ask advice of the people that you you know you, what's the thing you are, I can't say it now so it's completely irrelevant if you ask advice you're asking you know you go to the people that are going to give you the, the advice that you really want to hear I don't know anyway I wish I'd yeah. start I don't know what the hell I'm trying to say um, <laughs> so advice yeah uh, I think as an actor be aware that it would be really useful for you to have some other things to look after your self-esteem with but you know at the same time as David Mamet says in his book you know don't have anything to fall back on because you'll fall back on it so there are actors who would say you know you need to give 100% commitment and just want to do that and nothing else uh, for me personally I needed some stuff that allowed me to still feel okay as a human being while I was doing it um, so yeah. you might want to think about that um, uh, yeah and voice don't be frightened both as a performer or a writer of um, of the fact that, that your experience is unique are completely unique and personal to you like and I know that's almost like a cliche now, people go, you, you, but really you are the only person, including the only person in your family, or the only person to, to have had your life experience. Yeah. And you can be 18 or you can be 81, your journey up to that point will have been absolutely and fundamentally unique to you. So really feel like you're able to share that with people because they will not have heard it before but your personal story it 
the personal is 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 the thing that people are interested in because that's where people get their stuff from. If you can tell a personal story really well, people will identify yeah. with it. When I did Let's Talk About Death Baby, I was talking about my father, his death, his specific story, and my story. But people came up to me after every show, a lot of people came up to me that I'd never met before and said, and told me about their father's dying. People right. are going to identify it because it's a human story fundamentally. Exactly, exactly. and it doesn't matter that they're, it, sometimes it wasn't their fathers, sometimes it was their mothers, sometimes it was, you know, it's, it was their cat, you know. Didn't, yeah. What people are talking about is bereavement, right? And that's an absolute fundamental human experience. Yeah, so, so uh, and even if it's not a fundamental human experience, quite a lot of young people came up to me and said, I haven't lost a parent yet, but I'm sure I will one day. And that shows really helped me. Or, yeah. do you know, so actually, it's your personal story is the story people want to hear. That's what that would be my main advice. Your story is the story that people want to hear, not someone else's story. Thank you, Nick. Thanks very much. That's okay, Kieran. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.